Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, and thank you for listening to this show. My name is Zach Twomley. You're listening to the introduction episode of Poland Is Not Yet Lost. Poland Is Not Yet Lost is a podcast which delivers a chronological history of Poland in the 18th century, from the beginning in 1700 to its removal from the map of Europe by 1795. It is a story of diplomatic intrigue on a grand scale, of bitter, shattering defeat, and of inspiring courage on an epic European stage. If investigating this story sounds interesting and worthwhile to you, then I'd like to say welcome to Poland is Not Yet Lost. Poland is not yet lost. While we live, we will fight with swords for all that our enemies have taken from us. The Polish national anthem, Mazurek Dobrowskiego, the first verse. I recall my university days in the year 1832 at Göttingen, which was a kind of depot for Polish refugees from the uprising of 1831. As a young man, I got to know some of the outstanding people of the Polish parliament. They were interesting, charming people, but what interests me most is the enthusiasm with which these Poles were received in all these cities of central Germany, and yet, I heard them say it themselves, they in no way left off their strivings or changed their minds about Germans and Germany. I recall that I occasionally discussed with one of the Polish gentlemen the Slavic echoes which appear in many of the place names of my home dating from an earlier period. He said to me, the conversation was in French, just wait, we will give them back their original names. Otto von Bismarck, speaking in the Reichstag to his own party and to the Polish delegates who constituted a considerable plank of the political opposition. The 28th of January, 1886. No other event in modern times has produced such extensive lasting changes in the map of Europe as did the dismemberment of the Polish Republic. As a result of the partitions, Russia, previously so remote, and as long as a strong Poland existed, so largely cut off from communications with the West, extended her frontiers deep into Central Europe to within 200 miles of Berlin and Vienna. Harvard professor Robert Howard Lord, writing in his book The Second Partition of Poland, 1915. There were several reasons for our uprising. We wanted to show the world that although we wanted to have an independent Poland, 
We were not prepared to accept this gift of freedom from anyone, if it meant accepting conditions contrary to the interests, traditions and dignity of our nation. We wanted to be free and to owe this freedom to nobody but ourselves. Jan Stanislaw Jankowski, Poland's underground government delegate, explains his people's aims during the Warsaw Uprising of 1944 over a radio broadcast. To the average inhabitant of Europe, the history of Poland is a yawning chasm whose edges are obscured by the overhang of accepted commonplaces. That the Poles are a romantic people, good at fighting, riding, dancing and drinking, pathologically incapable of organisation or stable self-government, condemned by geography and their own ineptitude to be the victims of history. Historian Adam Zamoyski, writing in 1987. I want you to imagine something radical. Imagine that your country just didn't exist. Let's go further than that. Imagine your country used to exist, but that it no longer does. And that you and your family, your peers, etc. are without a state. You are stateless. You wander from place to place. You engage in political debate in some places. You try to keep your culture and national memory alive in others. But nowhere truly feels like home. You know that nowhere will feel like home until you get your state back, a place where you and your countryless countrymen can feel represented, legitimised and free. It isn't that much to ask, since so many other states exist, but as hard as you and your expatriates try, no one wants to know. The idea of your state is too complicated. There are too many vested interests at stake in keeping the status quo going, and that status quo does not include you. Some even hint that you deserve it, that your state was too weak, your people too disorganised, self-interested or unruly to ever properly rule themselves. Is it not better, says the consensus, for the sake of the stability of everyone that you just go somewhere else? Wherever you go, though, you are never far away from those nostalgic thoughts of a new home, a promised land, somewhere where you can live without fear or persecution. If the world won't give it to you, then you'll make yourself a national haven in other cities. You'll build other countries off the back of your hard work. You'll show the world just how thrifty, how hard-working, how proud, and how undeniable you and your people are. You can't be ignored. You can't be sidelined or swept under the rug. And the history of your people can't be forgotten. You know for a fact that in the lands you used to live, there remains a great deal of talk about independence. Your new overlords are always terrified of what your people can do, of how you and your able-bodied men will side with the enemy if he invades. So you are offered some incentives to remain loyal. 
political representation in the parliament, but it's not enough. How can it be when you used to rule these lands yourself, independently of these new masters? They always seemed new to you. They always seemed unnatural to you. Some among your tribe even remember a time when they were not here, and when everyone lived in peace together, but peace never seems all that near these days. There is talk of a great war, a war more terrible than you can ever imagine. Radical ideas on the battlefield and in the schoolroom, which claim that all men are equal, and that the wealthy must be made to pay at last for the suffering of the many. Eruptions of violence go out across the continent, but where do you stand? Do you stand with the powers that be, who only recently annexed you into non-existence? And who now promise you the moon, or do you go with something radical as well? Their emperor promises, and he delivers. He has made the old ground shake like no other person you've ever known. So, after some deliberation, you and your people decide to fight with him. Upon arriving in his camp, you discover that you are not alone. For the first time in a long time, you and your people are united. You have a cause to rally behind. You have a dream to fight for. And it's independence, it's culture, it's nationhood. But it has to be seized. And from powers who don't want to give it to you, or to give it up. An orgy of violence follows. As the old order is devoured by the new. And you get what you've always dreamed of. Independence and guarantees of protection for the future. It seems like the triumph you never expected, but it always wished would be possible. But you've celebrated too soon. Something so radical as the freedom of your people could never be accepted for long. The forces of the old world are moving against you, and that emperor once more. This time, fortune favours them, and you watch bitterly as stuffy, privileged gentlemen Carve your homeland up once more and hand it back to the vultures. Your peers, who had been so elated by the experience, are, are now crushed. Yet you hold onto the core message deep at the centre of your movement, that as long as you live, and as long as your family lives, your state will always live also. As long as the memory of your nation is kept alive, and as long as people will fight for it, it will never vanish. It's a message which is so simple, but also so important and so powerful at the same time. You hold on to it, then. You let it nurture you and nourish you and your people for generations to come. Amidst fleeting attempts to restore your independence, to relive that fleeting dream, your people are constantly trampled down into the dust. But as long as you live, as long as you fight, they can never take it away from you. And they do try. Oh boy, it would be easier for them if you gave up. It would be easier for them if you forgot the glory days of your nation. If you forgot what makes you different from them. If you forgot what they did to you and your people in the pursuit of their selfish ends. The path you take is the path of resistance. Sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive-aggressive. But it is a hard path, an intense path. One which will not net you many friends in the states you consider your temporary home. Always you move from place to place, not settling for the status quo. You know deep down that someday, somehow, the call will come out to your people again. Just like the Emperor's call before. And for that day, you will be ready. Opportunities do not come along often. But something in the air tells you that now, this time, you'll have a chance to make a play once more for your nation. It's that old ghost of mankind. War, and it's haunting the continent again. It erupts somewhere obscure, and you're not sure why, but like a set of dominoes, the old world lines up to fall down once again. 
This time, though, the end goal is less clear-cut. There are no emperors of reputable calibre, just miniature deities playing god with men's lives. What seemed at first like an opportunity for your people quickly becomes a crisis. There are no good or bad sides to this, so where to fight? Whose promises should you trust? The only choices are bad ones. The only choices are those masters who would rather see you trampled into the dust than give you hope for a better life, but who now feel forced to call on you because of the circumstances. So you do your best to pick the right side, and you quickly discover that you got lucky. The victories pile up, as do the glories, and before long, you're able to watch perhaps your greatest nemesis crumble into revolution and despair. Your people, it seems, were not the only ones crushed under the heel of a czar. The Tsar's own people had been crushed too, and they'd become tired of it long ago. But now that you've won this victory against your nemesis in the east, what happens next? The other powers don't throw in the towel, and you're forced now to fight to the west, away from your homeland, against states which you have no bone to pick with traditionally. One more push, they say, and you can have what is rightfully yours, but beneath the victories you notice that your friends are buckling under the strain. Powers from the New World have become involved, and they outmatch anything your temporary friends can muster. Uneasily, but also with optimism, you retreat to your ancestral lands. You move into the cities which used to hoist your flags, to the universities which are named after your kings, to those road signs which bear your language. You and several others start fixing this place up, and soon your countrymen have flocked in larger numbers than ever before to reclaim what is rightfully theirs, to reclaim their homeland. It is then that you learn of an incredible development. People are starting to talk about you for the first time in a long time, and one individual in particular seems to believe that your freedom must be one of the critical planks upon which any peace should be built. Peace sounds good to you for sure, but you feel that the trial cannot yet be over. Surely they would not just let you have what you want, what is rightfully yours. Surely it can't be that easy. With the final collapse of your temporary friends, you learn that indeed it isn't that easy. Your presence is required at Versailles. It is up to you and several of your peers to go to this town and fight for the right of your state to survive. It is up to you to talk to these men and lay down the argument in favour of your state's existence. It is up to you to justify your nationhood to these men and to explain to them why your nation now deserves to be free and to rule itself. As you prepare for the journey, it's hard to know exactly what you'll find. It has been so many years since people were this interested in what you had to say, or in the existence of your state, full stop. How can you make them see what it is that your nation means to you? How can you persuade them that the status quo was wrong, and that independence is as justified for your people as any other? How will you traverse the treacherous dealings, the self-interested statesmen, the strategic concerns of others? How will you prevent your people from becoming a pawn in the designs of these gentlemen again? How can you trust a word that they say after all that's been done to you over all these years? Versailles. That is your destiny. That is where you make your claim. Somehow, some way, you must show them that you and your people deserve to stand on their own two feet. Somehow, you must overcome the prejudices and the myths surrounding your people. Somehow, some way you must ensure that your nation rises again, and in this resurrection, that it has its feet planted on solid ground, so that the horrors of national extinction shall never threaten you again. It's quite the mission, 
and there's no end of pressure because 20 million of your people look on. Somehow you have to show these cantankerous gentlemen gathered in the sumptuous French locale that signal truth, that your state wants its place on the continent again, that your nation can be of benefit to them, that your people will work hard in a new republic, a stable democracy in the east, which will insulate the rest of the continent from revolution on a ferocious scale. You have to show them that your nation has... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market never really left the map from which it was once so cruelly erased. You have to show them that your people have not forgotten, have not moved on, have not become something else entirely. You have to show them that your homeland remains in place, and you have to tell them that even after all these terrible trials, these unjust judgments, those fickle allies, corrupt leaders and failed dreams, that you and your people are still here and you're not going anywhere. You must tell them that as long as your people have breath in their bodies, this will always be the case. That as long as even one of your people live, you'll not stop fighting. Because so long as one of you live, so does your nation. You must tell them that try as they might, your new masters could not condemn you to national extinction. They can never truly tame you, and they definitely could not break you. Tell them with pride in your step, firmness in your voice, and courage in your heart, that Poland is not yet lost. Polish representatives were one among many delegations travelling to Versailles to stake their claim to nationhood as the ashes of the old world were scattered to the winds. There was unmistakably something happening here, something new which had never happened before on such a scale. Nations which people had heard of and had not, peoples who were popular and unpopular, efforts which were designed to be successful and miserable failures, Versailles hosted all sorts. Yet no other delegation from the ranks of the stateless caused as much headaches for those great powers assembled at Versailles than the Poles. For Poland to become viable, it had required the destruction of the three empires which had once partitioned it into oblivion in 1795. Whether this irony was common currency in Versailles is hard to say. 
The rebirth of Poland hadn't caused the destruction of Austria, Prussia and Russia. The First World War had plainly done that. Yet, now that these old enemies were in pieces, it was possible for Poland to be reinstalled within stable foundations and to play a genuinely active role in the post-war era. Certain powers were already lining up with their own lists of demands as they imagined the role which this Poland was going to play in such a world. With the British and French both responsible for a contingent that was doing battle against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War, there was great interest in containing the spread of communism and preventing its expansion in Europe in early 1919. To fulfil this mission, the British, French and Americans appointed themselves the Destroyers of Lenin. But it was plain that this task would be easier said than done. Now that their ally of 20 years was crumbling into bits, it was perhaps only to be expected that the French turned to the issue of Poland with a certain urgency. A strong Poland to the east of a post-war German state would provide France with the same level of security that she had enjoyed prior to the outbreak of the First World War, when the Triple Entente and Triple Alliance ruled the continent. Indeed, Poland's representatives were not ignorant of these ambitions or hopes. Furthermore, the Polish delegates anticipated that they would receive a sympathetic ear. American President Woodrow Wilson had, after all, made it plain that national self-determination was one of the guiding principles of the conference. In his Peace Without Victory speech, made in early 1917, he had said that, I take it for granted, for instance, that statesmen everywhere are agreed that there should be a united, independent and autonomous Poland, and that Henceforth, inviolable security of life, of worship, and of industrial and social development should be guaranteed to all peoples who have lived hitherto under the power of governments devoted to a faith and purpose hostile to their own. As if that wasn't good enough, as per his 14 points, the American president made sure to single out the polls in the penultimate point, number 13, wherein Wilson had said, an independent Polish state should be erected, which should include the territories inhabited by indisputably Polish populations, which should be assured a free and secure access to the sea, and whose political and economic independence and territorial integrity should be guaranteed by international covenant. The danger posed by communist Russia presented a new opportunity for this new Polish state to grow and receive generous subsidies and foreign investment. Poland could be a gate blocking the expansion of that dangerous ideology, and it could be a strong bulwark at the same time against any signs of German aggression or rearmament. So it was that at Versailles, the historical tables seemed to have been turned, for so long a victim of its geography and of the politics which arose from it, now Poland stood to gain from its position. Yet, if Polish exiles and residents alike hoped to see their state be resurrected from the ashes, they were to be frustrated. Just like other issues up for debate at Versailles, the question of Poland aroused varying degrees of disagreement or passion. Before long, it became clear that British Prime Minister David Lloyd George had positioned himself as the loudest voice of opposition against Polish nationhood. In particular, Lloyd George objected to the idea that this new Poland would gain at Germany's expense. Woodrow Wilson's pledge to give Poland access to the sea was problematic because it seemed to promise the return of West Prussia to Poland, a region in between Brandenburg and East Prussia which had been annexed by Frederick the Great in 1772. The creation of this Polish corridor would grant Poland access to the sea, but 
it would also leave several million Germans stranded in a new Polish Republic. To Lloyd George, this was unacceptable, and he made this point plain when he stated, Poland has won her freedom, not by her own exertions, but by the blood of others. And not only has she not gratitude, but she says she loses faith in the people who won her freedom. Lloyd George was wrong on this count, of course. Poland as a country may not have participated in the First World War, but as a people, Poland lost at least 450,000 of its people during its furies, with a further 900,000 wounded, as the Poles fought in four different armies. If we were to judge nationhood solely on Lloyd George's gory criteria alone, then surely this was enough blood spilled to deserve a state. A Polish commission, comprised of high-profile Polish nationalists and distinguished figures, presented their case to the victorious powers at Versailles in March 1919. Their suggestions would have granted Gdansk, historically one of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth's most important port cities, back to the new Polish Republic as part of this Polish corridor which would cut between Brandenburg and East Prussia. But to Lloyd George it was unacceptable that the Poles should want to turn back the clock to before the times of the partitions in the 18th century. He noted in a memorandum in late March 1919 that The proposal of the Polish Commission that we should place 2.1 million Germans under the control of a people which is of a different religion and which has never proved its capacity for stable self-government throughout its history must, in my judgment, lead sooner or later to a new war in the east of Europe. The fact that Lloyd George's words here proved so tragically prophetic has often disguised the two key untruths that he also took the time to say. The war in the east of Europe would come, but had it not been for the remilitarization of Germany and the ascension of the Nazis, such a war would never have resulted from the decisions made here. Second, and the real issue I take with Lloyd George's critique of the Poles, was that idea that Poland had never proved its capacity for stable self-government throughout its history. Lloyd George was not a student of history, that much is certain. If he had been, he would have known better than to have made such a sweeping judgement about Poland's experience with self-government. Poland had enjoyed stable self-government. More than that, it could boast of having spearheaded legislative democracy, principles of individual liberty, and of penning the first written constitution in Europe. Had it not been picked apart by its neighbours over the latter half of the 18th century, indeed, Poland would never have needed someone like Lloyd George to resurrect it in the first place. What the Prime Minister failed to understand, or what he didn't want to acknowledge, was that political instability didn't kill off Poland or as it was known in its final moments in the late 18th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The diseases of political unrest, national tensions, religious intolerance and economic decline did, it is true, reduce the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to a bed-ridden patient by the second half of the 1700s. Yet, at the same time, these diseases were profoundly aggravated, and the Polish patient was eventually killed off, not by such diseases, but by the twin poisons of foreign intervention and imperialism, and the opportunism of her neighbours. The story of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is very much a story of her neighbours, 
The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a victim of geography, of an ill-timed decline, and of the rapacious expansionism of Austria, Russia, and Prussia. Not to mention the dynastic ambitions of the houses of Habsburg, Romanov, and Hohenzollern. The first shock would come in 1772, when Frederick the Great, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, and Catherine the Great of Russia took it upon themselves to help themselves to the lands of the Commonwealth, at Poland's expense. Contemporaries varied between recoiling in horror as the Commonwealth was cut up into pieces and blaming it all on the Poles for not holding themselves together during the state's countless trials. Henry VIII of England was busy lopping off the head of his umpteenth wife while the Union of Poland-Lithuania was distinguishing itself in the vast, mysterious east of Europe as a centre of scientific progress, of tolerance and of power. Indeed, one of the first messages sent between England and Poland-Lithuania arrived in Krakow in 1415, when King Henry V of England pleaded with King Vladislav Jagiello of Poland for aid against France. The light of Poland-Lithuania was a great deal duller by the dawn of the 18th century than it had been in 1415, but that did not mean that Poland did not deserve to exist. The Commonwealth remained an integral, if weakened, part of European relations, and an unignorable entity in the wars which the 17th and 18th century spawned. Similarly, the absence of Poland-Lithuania from the map of Europe for a century could not cover up the achievements of the Poles before its disappearance, and the Polish culture had certainly not been eliminated from the continent, as the Russian czars had so desperately hoped. If Lloyd George's ignorance of Polish history and nationhood seemed startling, considering that man's responsibility for shaping the post-war world, we should note that Lloyd George was facing a similar problem close to home in Ireland. In Ireland, like in Poland, a people wished to be free from the old shackles of imperialism and vassalage, which had once bound them to a more powerful master. They wished to move out of the shadow of their neighbours and forge their own path. Perhaps Lloyd George believed he sent a confusing message to the Irish delegation at Versailles if he gave way to the Poles. One thing is certain, though, once Lloyd George no longer played a significant role in the negotiations on Polish statehood, these negotiations proceeded a lot more smoothly. I come to this brand new history podcast, Poland is Not Yet Lost, with two major aims. The first is to demonstrate that the Polish decline in the 18th century wasn't all the fault of the Poles themselves, and that its neighbours shared the burden of responsibility for the eventual disappearance of Poland from the map of Europe. Second, I wish to tell the story of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century from 1700 to the end with a focus on diplomacy, the key characters and foreign politics of Poland, and its surrounding powers above all. This task will involve investigating watershed moments in European history during the 18th century, and seeing where Poland fits into them, as much as it will involve looking at how the Poles interacted with their neighbours in a broader sense. With all of these notes out of the way then, I would like to say thanks for listening to the first introductory episode of Poland is Not Yet Lost and the first actual episode of this new podcast. If you're starting in order, which you should be, if you enjoy history podcasting, then stick around for what we have for you for the next few years. Because yes, we're going all the way with this one, and I'm really, 
really excited about it. When we're starting a series like this and laying the foundations out for it, it's no easy task. We need to cover some extra bits of housekeeping and bits of information before we properly get into it. So with that in mind, there's a second introductory episode. And in that, we'll be looking at the sources, the structure and the schedule of Poland is not yet lost, as well as some notes on the focus on Poland itself within this story, which you've likely already suspected. We call it Poland-Lithuania, but the Poland aspect is what I'll be really focusing on. Sorry, Lithuania, but I'm sure your time will come. There's a need for tangents, and there's a need to talk about the terminology that we'll use throughout this podcast, so we'll talk a bit about that as well. If you want to fully grasp what we're going to be talking about, what Poland is not yet lost is all about, and if you want to make sure you're up to speed with our plans for this podcast, then do make sure you listen to the next introductory episode. If you don't care either way, and you're eager to get into the more meaty aspects of the story, well, that's too bad, I'm going to have you arrested. No, I'm only kidding, but... Of course, these episodes are all available to make sure we're on the same page when the first true episode of the series lands. Either way, my name is Zach. Thanks for listening here, and I hope to be seeing you in the second introductory episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.